We have an intriguing and entertaining young guest this week in Colin Kyo, who is a PhD researcher in UCD University in Dublin. When I looked up Colin's range of achievements, I was bowled over. He is the CEO and founder of the Rapid Foundation, which he explains. He's a PhD with Smart Lab. He is one of Forbes 30 under 30 for science and healthcare. The Junior Chamber International Top Outstanding Young Person, and the list goes on and on. But he's probably most well known for being one of the main instigators behind the Open Ventilator Project this year that has 6,000 participants worldwide to drive an open source ventilator design. Colin is very accomplished as an innovator, and I think you'll also agree as a natural leader. I'd say if any organisations are looking for an outstanding innovator, Colin is the person to talk to. This podcast is sponsored by Netzer Digital Onboarding, netzer.com. We provide digital onboarding and customer digital channel management solutions to a wide range of verticals, including mobile operators, MVNOs, eSIM providers, financial institutions and charities. Please contact us at netzer.com or email pat.flynn at netzer.com and we'd be glad to understand your business requirements. So welcome to the podcast and this week we have a fantastic guest, Colin Kyo. And well, we're just talking with Colin and I'm not sure how to introduce him, but uh, maybe we'll tease that out as we get into the conversation. Uh, Colin is an engineer and he says maybe he'd prefer to be a car mechanic. Would that be fair, Colin? Yeah, yeah. Jack of professional jack of all trades is what I like to go with. Right, but you you actually you uh, you actually have a background working with your dad in cars, but now you have a PhD in UCD, which for international um, listeners is is one of Ireland's major universities. But anyway, let's tell us tell us a bit about yourself, your dad. You you're good with your hands. You're good with your brain. What what? Who is Colin? So yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. So like it's I am yeah as I said a a, a fixer at heart. You know a mechanic at heart. I grew up. With my father in his garage, like he ran it, he ran his own car mechanics garage for for his whole life basically. And I grew up around that environment, you know, fixing anything, fixing everything. And I learned at an early age that sort of methodical problem solving approach. You know, I was always kind of competent. I won't say amazing in school. I was competent in school. I had an affinity towards maths and construction and anything kind of logical based. So I followed that into engineering. And I did a good couple of years in UCD studying as a mechanical engineer, then a renewable energy engineer, just finished my PhD in, in applied innovation systems. And since I've left, I was, I've kind of always worked between consultancy space and the research space for about the last 10 years, helping people with applied innovation projects. So any sort of bleeding edge technology, implementing them for a specific function. So using all of this high tech equipment to solve specific problems, no matter what field they're in and no matter what area they're in. I've got a kind of, I'm drawn to complex problems. So the harder the problem, the more appealing it is to me because then the solution is an awful lot more satisfying when you actually get to it in the end. So yeah, a life a problem solver, <laughs> like a Lego kid on steroids. Yeah, it's funny, you know, because of an engineering background myself and um, there is a lot of logic uh, to 
you know, the discipline of engineering, maths, or the actual technology. But there is also this creativity in it that I, which I actually think was the most fantastic thing about real engineering. And while you think logically, there is a huge amount of people, I think to say um, left brain, right brain thing is a bit sort of a, a simplification. The really good engineers are actually extremely creative, which I, I think you are in fairness. I'd agree. Yeah, I'd agree fully. Like in an awful lot of ways, people bracket scientists and engineers together. But to me, I think engineers are closer nearly to an artist than they are a scientist. While both scientists and engineers use that logical progression structure. What I find is engineers learn a, a specific way of thinking to solve specific problems. You know, so if that's troubleshooting, it's a very logical step. But to create the new forms of application or the new forms of technology, you need to have that creative side as well that allows you to look at something differently than everyone else has beforehand or maybe look into an industry and see is there something you can borrow in there so like the creativity aspect is a very very important part of it particularly when you're creating something new or you're applying something new into a certain field you know it's unknown feeling so there's no logic in order to follow in the unknown you need to create it but you need to create it in that logical flow so other people can understand it and it has the best chance of actually succeeding in the end Okay, and I know you've done some really interesting projects, and there was one in particular I mentioned to you uh, before we started. So, is you you have special expertise in three D printing? I know you you consider that to be a tool to solve problems, and I'm sure you have many other areas of expertise. But there's one project in particular that I thought would be really interesting to the audience. So it's related to a young a young girl. So maybe could you talk us through that a little bit, please? Sure. So. Yeah, when I was working in the university at that stage, it was right on the buzz of consumer 3D printing systems, you know, lower cost. At that stage, it was about a thousand, fifteen hundred euro 3D printer systems. And the university UCD I was in had bought a load of systems and distributed them around the campus. So that's when I got my first taste of it in about 2014. And me and a friend of mine at the time who was also working in the university kind of jumped on board and said, this is amazing. Look at all the stuff we could do. So very, very quickly, we started to modify the systems. We changed the systems. We upgraded the printers. We were actually, as engineers working in a research role, were researching the process of engineering which was all well and good. We were doing some consumer consultancy, you know, with first run prototype devices for new products. That was all great. But we managed to amass an awful lot of 3D printer systems. So we said there has to be a better use for this. So when we went looking, we said, look, we can make anything with these systems. So if we can distribute these systems, we can help make anything anywhere. So we started a foundation, the Rapid Foundation, about in 2014. And so what we did, um, now what's the name of that again? Just so people. The can Rapid Foundation is what the, rap, the Rapid Foundation. Yeah. Yes, go, ahead, go ahead. So we started that. And the idea between that was we could send, we could donate and send 3D printer systems to regions that need them in the world. We teach the people there how to use them. We teach them about innovation and product design. And we just support them to create whatever solutions they need. So very, I'll be honest, very naively, you know, me and Shane, who started it with me, both of us as, you know, maybe very uh, arrogant engineers, let's say, had decided we were able, to, we, we were best placed to decide what people in developing regions needed with these systems. Very, very quickly, reality came and slapped us around and said, we did not know it in the slightest. So we made our thing completely flexible. And the idea was it's up to the people in the region to develop whatever they needed to develop. So in that case, it led a lot to lower cost medical devices. So 
you know, with connections and people we've met. What would, when you say lower cost medical devices, are you talking prosthetics or what are you talking? So basically anything, you know, we'll give it like, a, we kind of got carried away recently in the last couple of months and I'll tell you about that in a minute. But yeah, like there's like, you know, anything at that stage. Huh? I love your enthusiasm. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of yeah. There's no limit to whatever you can do with this. At that stage, it was ba it started educational tools, so cellular models and teaching aids to teach doctors and care workers in developing regions more scientific knowledge. Let's say you know trying to describe to somebody the structure of a cell is very complicated. It's much easier if you can show them. Then we kind of pivoted into basic kind of external medical devices, finger splints wrist braces, that sort of stuff, you know, things that we can make custom fit to individuals in slums in India for, you know, a couple of euros versus thousands in the rest of the world. And then that kind of got carried away. And then we got into lower cost 3D printed prosthetics. So which bring me on to that story you're talking about is that was a case we actually made here in Ireland. So it was a little girl here in Ireland who needed some 3D printed. She needed a prosthetic. The health service for a multitude of reasons were not providing that to her. So we were then able to provide it to her very, very quickly. You know, a hand that could do probably 80 to 90% the function of a traditional like medical prosthetic device. But while they cost maybe five to 10,000 euros and it might take you nine months to get, we could make ours for like 15 euros and produce one in about six or seven hours. So, you know what I mean? It's super yeah, quick and super reliable. So we made a couple, we've made a couple of them, a few in Ireland, and uh, an awful lot more of them in developing countries around the world. So now we can remotely support people with what are very basic assembly skills to manufacture what would be considered a very complicated medical external medical device. Mm. So it kind of progressed that way. And in that work, then we started looking at other things. So uh, renewable energy systems, uh, you know, wind turbines, water pumps, impeller wheels, anything that could be manufactured, things that are complicated, but not hugely high cost. Mm -hmm. Because we found in particular when you're working and supporting overseas development projects, let's say, us in the West have a kind of a savior complex, let's say, right? Mm -hmm. We want to send a incubator. We want to send a, you know, a, a surgery room. We want to send the big ticket items. Nobody wants to send reusable scalpel blade holders. Nobody wants to send stethoscope cups, you know, very basic consumable things. So we looked at manufacturing them in the region so people could manufacture them to, to fix some like, you know, medical issues that they kind of face. So both that's the kind of lower end. And then the last couple of months, we got really carried away with higher end solutions there. <laughs> well, just before you go, I have to say, I mean, there, there's this uh, horrible word disruption. I mean, that is truly disruption. Uh, I mean, in the best possible sense, maybe unless you're already an established manufacturer in this space. But the point being that you were able to come up with a, a, a lower cost, flexible, faster to market solution that really makes, puts the, 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 the current approach in question. And maybe it's not perfect for the moment, but I'm, I'm sure you'll get there. So it's, it's a really amazing example of, of true disruption. It is indeed. And I'd agree with you. I don't like that term either. Because like the way it's structured means it's meant to be something that you kind of fear or don't, like, you know, disruption. Yeah. Nobody embraces disruption. It means an inter interruption to normal. And it's something that an awful lot of people don't want to kind of have to face. But I would agree, like, you know, it's whether these industries change or they will be changed externally by players that have nothing to do with it. So you kind of have to embrace it at kind of every stage. And then that's a perfect point. So that was justified by 
our latest thing when we got really carried away with manufacturing stuff. So when COVID hit, um, funnily enough, I run a consultancy company and we were due to launch on the 15th of March. And our first launch event was an interdisciplinary innovation session with all of the heads of the civil service for Ireland, you know, HSE, guards, army, military. So as you can expect, that was rapidly cancelled because they were busy preparing for incoming COVID. So we were kind of like, great, we launched and our first launch event's gone. We'll have to do something else. So we ended up pivoting into it and we set up a group called Open Source Ventilator, which then became Team OSV. And basically for the last couple of months, we managed to amass a couple of thousand volunteers, all remote online, to try and develop interventions for COVID. So from ventilators, 3D printed ventilators were the goal, um, to, you know, face shields, PPE systems, education materials, contact tracing apps, anything and everything, all developed remotely online. So the element of that, so I was focusing mainly on, mainly on the ventilators with that. You talk about medical devices, you know, a medical device ventilator might take years to get certified with teams of hundreds and millions of euros but in an emergency we were sitting at the table with the world health organization and all of these large global mental ventilator manufacturers saying look you've got something that works and we need it you're as good as we are in this kind of battle so what it did in that stage is it completely kind of normalized and justified this idea of people outside traditional loops being able to develop new solutions in reaction to an emergency. Okay, so, so essentially you were instrumental, or, or I'm sure very instrumental, in helping push this open source ventilator project forward. And the community around the world, of thousands of people got involved. And because of the necessity for urgency, you're able to move this along much more quickly and, and um, it became priority. So again, that's an amazing story of, um, I suppose, loads of smart people in rooms around the world cooperating, probably never meeting face to face. I mean, nope. that's, how did that feel? I mean, did you go like, how, how the hell did I get here? <laughs> this, is supposed to be, this must be an amazing feeling to be one of the key people in this sort of, probably to keep, I'm sorry, Colin, I'm not trying to uh, buddy up. Oh, there. there was more than me. There was an awful lot more than me. I'd agree with yeah, that. Yeah, but yeah it was a strange how feeling. It, how did it feel to be in the middle of that? It was a strange feeling. So thankfully, I think one of the reasons that we actually started it was I had some experience in this before with the hands and the medical devices. So it wasn't completely new. I was used to these remote projects. I was used to you know, regulatory battles because I've had my regulatory battles with people before over the hand. So I had some comfortable, I had, I was comfortable in that sort of space, but you know, we kind of, kind of, what I basically relied on was the amazing people that we had volunteering. So you know what I mean is we had a very good close of people that I like group of people that I've worked with multiple times in the past that I trusted that I knew what they were doing. They knew what I were doing and we kind of organized everything from Ireland. And then we just had, people that were willing to contribute. And as you said, very clever people in rooms around the world. The lockdowns and being furloughed from work removed people's external kind of, I don't want to call them distractions because they're more than that, but it meant people had wanted to help, but also had the time and the capacity to do it. So, you know what I mean? I think, yeah, I think our final numbers were, I think we had like six and a half thousand people expressed interest in trying to help us yeah. from 155 different countries. You know, we had- That's incredible. Like, we had kind of nuclear physicists from CERN. We had, you know, the kind of heads of medical schools in the US. We had 
astronaut candidates. We had medical doctors. We ha- and then we had, you know, kind of uh, ICA working groups at home that wanted to help, you know. So they were like sewing face masks and it was real normalizing because everyone could contribute in mm-hmm. their own specific way. And no specific element had a hierarchical power over the other one. You know, there was no kind of priority in it. It was, here's a community, go and get the help that you need go and develop your solutions. And if they work, we can then help you get them out there. So it was a kind of democratization of this innovation process, which was solely driven by the situation the world was in. You know, the regulations that would normally hold people back because there was such a panic for how bad this could get. They were, I won't say they were paused, but there was a recognition that if this got really bad, they may not be held as in such high regard as they were in the past. So that kind of gave access to the higher levels and a trickle down from there on in. Okay, actually, let me just say this to you. You talked earlier about you being a creative engineer, but I, th- I can see in you uh, leadership, egoless leadership. And what I mean by that is like, you're, I think you see yourself as um, a facilitator of other people to achieve an end. <clears throat> and uh, I, I commend you for that. I mean, I think, I, I suspect that's a big factor in these projects. I'm, 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 not, I'm sure your colleagues are equally depth at this but I can see that in it that you're instrumental in tapping into community group all of who probably you know have the same instinct as you do to help other people so I really it's really fantastic to hear the story thanks Colin now at this stage of the podcast I usually ask uh, the, the, the the guest to nominate a piece of music to play out on which is I prefer not to know before the podcast so I'm always looking forward to the surprise have you thought of something you'd like to play I have on? indeed. I have indeed. It has to be like Back in Black from ACDC from me. Oh, yeah. You know what <laughs> I mean? That sort of, I've got an affinity towards old rock and roll and an affin- affinity towards, I always wanted to be Iron Man. So that is associate, associated with it. And you can't see now, but the, 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 the office I'm in, I have an aluminium Iron Man helmet behind me that I just wear sitting at the desk as I'm working. So that's for me. Back in Black is for me. Okay, great choice, and uh, it was a great uh, number to rock out on. Thanks, Colin. I really appreciate your time and a fantastic story. Thank you very much, and good luck with the rest of the podcasts.